Morning, everybody. Morning. Happy Mother's Day. If you're, uh, you know, into that kind of thing. <laughs> Man, it was so cool to, a nice surprise, uh, came in here and Tom was on the drums. That was pretty awesome. So, <laughs> uh, man, I love hearing whenever the full band's up here playing. Just really fills the room and uh, really draws you into worship. And I'm like, man, just love that. And just want to, like, I don't know, just felt the need to say, Tom, appreciate you jumping in and, and doing that. And, uh, yeah, it was really great. So, <clears throat> all right, so. This morning, uh, we are going to be talking a little bit about uh, Psalms, just very briefly, and uh, then we're eventually going to end up in 1 Chronicles 13. That's where we're heading, okay? Uh, But before we get there, um, I think it's good to just kind of lay some groundwork. Um, So as a church, we've been pretty deep into Psalms here for, you know, a couple weeks now. Uh, We still have quite a bit of Psalms to go. Um, The thing I want to make sure we understand is what Psalms is. Um, We've kind of already had an introduction to Psalms, but uh, why are we reading Psalms paired with other stories? All right, like why why aren't we just reading through the Psalms, right? Um, And that's actually one of the things I really like about this Bible reading plan is that they're pairing the two stories together um, intentionally. So I think that's just, that's really awesome. So I want to make sure that we understand why that's happening, okay? So Psalms is poetry, Poetry, songs, Hebrew poetry, all that. Uh, and so as you're reading through this, you're probably going like, well, it doesn't really sound like poetry. Um, it's, it's actually kind of hard to understand. Okay. So whenever we think about poetry, all right, uh, we think about, you know, um, the, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe. He had, she had so many children, she didn't know what to do. Right. We, we think of rhyme. We think of cadence. We think of rhythm. That's poetry. Right. Well, the English poetry is like what I just kind of read right there, okay, is based more in like Greek and Latin languages, okay, which means that it's going to be very sound-based, okay, um, syllable-based, things like that. Now, there's exceptions to every rule, okay, like when you start getting into like epic poetry, like Sir Gawain and the Green, Green Knight, Beowulf, things like that, still poetry. Forget about that for a second, okay? Let's keep it simple, all right? Let's stick with Mother Goose for this morning, okay? <laughs> um, but so there's exceptions to every rule. Now, Hebrew poetry does not have that. It is not sound-based, okay? Hebrew poetry is thought-based or uh, word-based, that kind of idea. Um, so you're going to have, with, when you're reading through the Psalms, just something to keep in mind, it's all going to be done by two lines, which is called a couplet, Okay? You don't have to remember the term, just remember two. Two lines. All right? And the second line is either going to, <clears throat> excuse me, complete, contrast, or deepen the first. Okay? So it's going to be like, the sky is blue and it's also big. All right? So it completed the thought. All right? Or the sky is blue and so the clouds are white. All right? That deepened it. It added something to the original thought. The sky is blue, and it's also green. It contrasts it, which is the most frustrating part of Psalms, <laughs> right? You're reading through this, and like, you, you, you said this, and now you're saying something totally different. What do you want me to get from this, okay? But the whole point is to make you feel something. So whenever you're contrasting in a couplet like that, what do you feel? Frustrated, right? <laughs> you feel frustrated. You feel anger. You feel, well, there's a good chance that maybe that's what the psalmist is trying to get you to feel during that particular part of the Psalms, okay? 
So just basic structure here when we're talking about poetry. So don't freak out when you're reading it. No, it doesn't rhyme. No, it doesn't have rhythm or cadence or anything like that. But that's not the point, okay? It's all thought-based when you're reading it. So I hope that kind of helps as you're saying it. Because some of you are looking, reading through Psalms and be like, just say it. Just say what you need to say and let's move on, okay? Right? Well, I don't know if you know this, but there's different types of people. <laughs> there are people who need to read a newspaper, and then there are people who need to read poetry in order to understand stuff, okay? Uh, me, personally, I like to listen to music and, and, and do poetic-y type things, okay? Like, that, that's just my personality that helps me concentrate, that helps me all of this. Uh, for example, my wife is not that way at all. <laughs> uh, you know, get, I, I want to read the headline to an article, and that's it. I understand the whole thing. I don't need to read anymore, okay? So you have two different types of people. So how awesome is it that we have a God that understands that there are different kinds of people? So he may reiterate the same story twice in two different ways. Why? Because he wants you to remember it because he wants you to understand it. He wants it in your heart. He wants you to feel it, and he wants you to think about it, okay? When you read something in the Psalms that pairs with a story in the Bible, that's telling us to slow down and take it in, okay? So kind of understand a little bit? All right, let's, let's do another example, all right? I, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think this is important because we still got a lot of this to kind of go through, okay? Um, Exodus 14, verses 21 through 22. Can we bring that up for a sec? There we are. All right, let's read this real quick, okay? <clears throat> the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand, okay? We just read the newspaper article about the parting of the Red Sea, right? One chapter later, in Exodus 15, does everyone remember these stories? Okay, Exodus 15, let's read this now. There we go, ready? At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The, deep, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. We have the exact same story. Told one chapter apart in two different ways. Okay? This is a very important part of Hebrew history, right? The parting of the Red Sea. This is a big deal to them. So we say it two different ways. So we understand it in our mind and it grips our heart. Both. Okay? Because at the end of the day, like, what are you going to remember? The sea split apart. There was a wall on the left and a wall on the right. This reads like an instruction manual. Right? Are you going to read, God blasted the water with his nostrils and turned the water to jello? What are you going to remember? <laughs> right? See, now, when parting the Red Sea, everyone's going to remember that God made the water jello. Because that's what that says. Right? It says, congealed. <laughs> right? That's what it says. That, that's how God parted the Red Sea. He made it into grape jello. I don't know why grape, but it's grape jello because I hate grape. Okay. Um, so, so anyway, that, that's what we get, right? We have, we have imagery, word art, stuff like that. That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to do. As we're coming into 1 Chronicles 13, we see that it's paired with psalms because we're supposed to feel this. Okay? 1 Chronicles 13 is a big, is a bigger story because it's the story of the ark being brought back to Jerusalem. Okay? After all this time, David's bringing the ark back. So let's go ahead and turn. First Chronicles 13. Okay? And while you're turning there, I just want to kind of just prompt us a little bit. And as we're talking about it, um, yep, we'll have it up. We'll get, we're going to read it here for, in just a second. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. So we, had, we read stuff like Psalms 106, okay, uh, which was basically the story of how Israel just kind of kept messing up and everything. It's the story from like, you know, uh, Exodus all the way to present day, you know. Uh, that's what Psalm 106 is. It's a retelling of like the first half of the Bible, right? Uh, that's what that was. So then you have um, Psalm 133, which is the, uh, the psalm that's trying to say like how beautiful it would be if Israel uh, uh, re- reunited, sorry had reunification. And that's what it's talking about. What what better way to reunify Israel than bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, right? So that's why these are are paired together. Um, And so right now we have David, he's king now, right? So he he has taken the throne. Um, Our savior is here. Um, You know, Saul, uh, he's dead. He lost his head. Um, Well, there's some poetry for you this morning. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Anyway, so Saul's dead. And now King David has taken the throne. Our Savior is here. Israel is going to be reunified because David is the anointed man of God to be on the throne. But what we find out is David is just a man. And like most of us, he makes mistakes. He doesn't do things right. And even though he is the man for the job, we find here in 1 Chronicles 13 that he makes a pretty, pretty large mistake. And it actually results in someone's death. So let's go ahead and read this real quick. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 first, okay? We're just going to kind of break this story up a little bit, all right? 1 Chronicles 13, verses 1 through 4. David consulted with the commanders of thousands, of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Okay, so this is another really cool thing about going through the Bible as a church, is there's a huge red flag in this passage. And I'm hoping a lot of people caught it. Because it's the same wording that we see in another book. It was right in their own eyes. Did everyone catch that? With this particular passage? Israel, David, has put themselves in a position right now of being able to decide what is good, what is bad. Evil, right? Evil, good, tov, raw, all that. They've put themselves in that position to make that decision for themselves. Because it was right in their own eyes. From the very beginning, the very first verse, it says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. Who did he not consult with? God. God. He did not consult God. He did not consult his word. Nothing. Okay? David just went for it. Right? I'm king. I'm the boss. I'm going to reunify, right? We didn't seek this in the days of Saul, but we're going to seek this in the days of David, right? I'm going to make things, all the people in the pasture lands, we're going to gather them to us. We're going to unify Israel, and I'm going to do it, right? That's how this reads. Remember the cycle, right? All through Judges that we see, what's David done right now? He's putting himself in the center of that cycle. 
He's made him the most important thing in this because he's went and consulted the leaders and his council of people that he's brought together to make this decision. And everyone's following him because it's right in their eyes. And what should have happened is the opposite. God should have been at the very center of this cycle. It should have started with, after praying night and day, you know, obviously you use hyperbole and things like this, right? So praying not night and day and sweat and blood and blah, 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 right? I consulted God. And with that, with a, with a command from the Lord, I gathered people, right? But that's not what we see in the story. This is a huge red flag, huge red flag. But let, let's make some important distinctions first. Okay, ready? What David is attempting to do is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. He's trying to go and get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem, right? That's good because it shows reunification, like we read in Psalms 133, all of this stuff. His goal that he's trying to say, gather everybody, all very good things. Heart might even be in the right place in that particular instance, Okay, he's bringing the ark in and he's also not only just reunifying, but he's showing that God is at the center and he is king. I'm just kind of his helper, right? So these are all really good things what he's trying to accomplish. Number two, though, how he does it is the problem. How he does it is the problem because God's word gives very clear instruction on how to handle the ark. Very clear construction. No room for interpretation with that because God had to make that clear because it's dangerous, right? He goes, I, I need to give you very, the, the instruction manual that you can read word for word, like do this, not this, and you're fine, right? He provided that for us, okay? He provided that for them, but they're not consulting the owner's manual, so to speak. So what happens? Worst case scenario, someone loses their life over this. Someone loses their life over this, and that's bad, okay? And see, this is exactly why, as a church, we've set up a posture of grounding ourselves in Scripture. Because God's Word is holy. Or unique. Or set apart. All synonyms. God's Word is holy. In fact, actually, if you're, if you're taking notes this morning, here's a big thing I want you to do, okay? At the top of your page, I want you to just write, God is holy. And circle it like four or five times, okay? If, if you're a note taker, if that's what you're doing, okay? Because as we're walking through this story, that's what I want us to remember. God is holy, okay? God's word is holy, set apart, unique, okay? And it's there for instruction, okay? Uh, it's, it's truth, right? Uh, John uh, 17, 17, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth, Right? And that's, but that's not what David does. See, we here at this church have set up, like I said, set up a posture to put in our, uh, like our, our leadership team, our deacons, our shepherding council, all, all of these different groups and things that we have going on. Everything We ground them in scripture because we don't want to accidentally or intentionally, right, have the church according to Adam or the gospel according to David or whatever, you know, like, or the book of Tisha, <laughs> you know, like by our staff, right? We, we don't want stuff like that either accidentally or intentionally. So we ground things in the word of God, right? So we don't accidentally do these things. When church starts doing churchy things, but it's not grounded in scripture, that's when things get dangerous, Okay. 
That, that's literally the book of Judges, how it court slowly diluted, right, into the surrounding culture. And it started weaving in and out, in and out, in and out, right? And then all of a sudden, they started using words like God. And, you know, there's churches today, they might even use the word like Jesus, but it's not grounded in anything. It doesn't mean anything, right? In fact, actually, I, I probably just described, like, the origin story of almost every cult. <laughs> you, you want a really scary read? One, one time, just if you want something that's really creepy, okay, go read the origin of the people's temple. <laughs> yeah, Keith knows. Yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah, go, go. Yeah, it did. It's like, it's, listen, guys, the people's temple started as a church just like this. It ended up with a group of people moving to South America and swallowing cyanide and dying. Let's stay grounded in the word. <laughs> and what God asks us to do and tells us to do and commands us to do, whatever, right? We stay grounded in this because if not, you have situations like people's temple, but you have situations like we're reading in 1 Chronicles 13. That's why we put weight on the word. That's why we have Bibles underneath the chairs, the black hardback ones. And we say, if you do not have a Bible, grab it. If not for today, take one with you. Read it at home. If you have five Bibles at home, take one with you. Hand it to somebody that doesn't have one. Get the word into people's hands. In fact, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a second. Okay? So anyway, that, that's, that's the danger of not doing that, right? If they would have read, if they would have consulted God, they would have found out that with the ark, it says, handle with care, and this is how. <laughs> right? Okay, so let's keep going, though. First Chronicles 13, verses 7 through 8. All right, there we go. All right. First Chronicles 17, or 13, sorry, 7 through 8. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart <clears throat> from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio. <laughs> Love that name. Ahio. We're driving the cart. And David and all of Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Sounds like a huge se- uh, celebration. And I, I don't necessarily want to get into the worship side of this, but... And, and there, there's nothing saying that, you know, like, the instruments they're using is wrong, everything. But this is not right worship. It has nothing to do with the instruments, okay? We're allowed to have drums on the stage, okay? Don't hear that. But what we're seeing here is that they're, they're celebrating and they're worshiping and everything like that. But, but we're, they're not following God's commands. So this is one of those situations where God's actually looking at their worship being like, that's just noise. That means nothing. Okay, I don't, like I said, I don't want to get into the worship two side of this. What I actually want to dive in on on this particular uh, group of passage, and they carried the ark, excuse me, of God on a new cart. Okay, now everyone remember back, way back when, okay, when we got all the instruction about how to handle the ark. I think it was in Exodus 25, I think. Okay, um, all the, like you do this, not this, 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 this. What is not in there? A cart. <laughs> You're not supposed to use a cart. It has two metal poles, one on this side, one on this side, up on the shoulder, and they carried it. Who carried it? The Levites. So there's even a specific group of people that are supposed to carry the ark. So there's a specific way and a specific people. None of that's happening in this story. None of it. Okay? <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. There's so much going wrong. <laughs> um, and you may look at this and you're like, okay, but that's a minor thing. The point is that they're getting the ark, okay? And this is where we start to dilute the phrase a little bit, I think. Even though I said it earlier, well, the heart's in the right place. 
Absolutely, the heart's in the right place. But there's a danger here that they're not respecting. Okay? There's a danger here. And I don't want to jump ahead. I want, let me talk about this first, and then we'll get into that. Okay? But anyway, there's a danger here. All right? And you may look at this and say, well, this is a very minor thing. But you could also make the argument, it's a very minor thing that Saul makes a sacrifice before a battle and not Samuel. And we all know what happened to Saul. There's an order to things for a reason. For a reason. Okay? God puts things in a specific order for a specific way to do things, right? To protect us. Okay? They call it a mercy seat for a reason. All right? We'll get in that here in a second. But it, it, it's to protect us. We don't have time for that. I want to keep going. Okay, so there's a lot of symbolism that comes with the ark, all right? And this is part of it, okay? It's not just because God said, you carry the ark because it's harder, and you need to know how hard it is to be a follower of Christ. Like, forget that, okay? That's not the point. It's not about how hard it is. It's what it represents, okay? And they're taking away the entire representation of what they're ordained to do. They're supposed to carry the ark on their shoulder because the word of God is meant to be delivered to all the earth by people who are ordained to do so. It's your job, not a cart. Does that make sense? There's there's symbolism and there's meaning to everything. And that's why they were meant to carry the ark. Okay, so all right, moving on. We're going to talk about worst case scenario here. Exactly what happens. In 1 Chronicles 13, 9 through 11. And when they came to the threshing floor, which... There's something there, but we're going to skip that for now. Threshing forward, Chidon. Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Like I said, this may seem like this really like minor thing, and then God like lashes out. Let's not forget, it wasn't just because he reached out. He's been, he's been angry the whole time, from the very beginning. But there's a different way to think about this anger. Okay? When I see any of my kids, or if I were, let's not talk about a specific scenario necessarily, but if I were to see any of my kids hop on their bike ride down the driveway into the middle of the street with a car, oncoming car. My reaction is going to be to yell at the top of my lungs, try to save them, obviously. But needless to say, we're going to have a very stern conversation on the proper way to play in the street. Right? I'm probably going to be a little angry because they knew better. I gave them the instruction. They knew the rules. And they decided to break the rules and put themselves into danger. And that's what we see here. God gave them clear instruction on how to handle the ark. And they chose to ignore it. They chose to ignore it. On verse 12 it says, And David was afraid of God that day. Well, Good. Because that's how this entire story should have started. 
Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And there, there's a point here where we, again, start to dilute. Because we like to say, when we say the fear of the Lord, we say, well, that means you respect him. I'm going to, bold, I'm going to be bold and just say, no, that's not what that means. There's, you, could, you could get there, but there's a difference. Okay? I respect Scott Spencer. But I have no fear that he's going to destroy me. It's not going to happen. Okay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have no fear that he's going to destroy me. That just simply going over there and touching him is going to make me burst into flames. I have no fear of that whatsoever. Now, if I touch one of his cars... <laughs> Uh, maybe this is a bad example. Uh, okay? But I respect Scott. I fear the Lord. Amen. See, David comes face to face in this picture with God's holiness and what it means to not fear it. And that's why at the top of your page, I want you to write, God is holy. Because through this entire story, that's what we need to remember. Because, see, David comes face to face with God's holiness and understands that in order to reconcile Israel, he has to reconcile God's dynamic holiness. If you keep reading through the story, you actually find out that David decides, maybe I shouldn't take this to Jerusalem just yet. Because he got afraid. He finally got a fear of the Lord. He said he's come face to face with his holiness. Now, there, there's a lot that can be said about God's holiness. And um, I am not the best person to do it. I'll admit that. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to play a video. Bible Project to the Rescue, right? So we're going to play a video, and they're going to talk about God's holiness for a little while. And we can't talk about God's holiness, and we can't read this story without then unpacking a little bit more of the symbolism with the ark. So after the video, that's where we're going to be. We're going to talk about the ark a little bit more, okay? Uh, but for right now, we're going to play this Bible Project video on holiness. And after that, like I said, we'll talk more about the ark, okay? You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, 
the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear. And God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable, because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, 
Their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where is this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. All right. That's a good, uh, succinct way of us to just kind of understand God's holiness. Okay. And this is what, like I said, this is what David has come face to face with. Uh, and when we see God, you know, warning Moses, like, don't come any closer. We see, you know, the holy of holies of the temple and everything. Don't, don't come in here. Don't come in here. It's dangerous. Right. And even from the very beginning, uh, at the, um, what was it, end of Exodus, into the army or whatever, whenever uh, they, they finished the tent and everything like that, and Moses was getting ready to walk in, and God said, stop, you can't come in here, right? Because it's dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous, right? So th- this is, now we see this. We see this actually physically happening right here where the fear of the Lord has not prompted them to consult him first. And the worst happens. Someone loses their life over this. Okay, and, you know, so then David's like, hard stop, hard stop. Let's not take it in Jerusalem. Maybe we should do some reading and figure out what we need to do. All right. Okay, so it's hard to talk about God's holiness. And you know, we, we touched on a little bit in the video here, but it's hard to do that and not talk about the ark. Okay, the ark itself. So let, let's bring up that first picture of the ark, if we can, please. And uh, so here, here's the ark. This is the ark of the covenant. It's not the actual ark of the covenant, okay? But uh, this, is, this is what it could have looked like or whatever, right? So you see here at the bottom, you see the poles, right? So that's the poles that the Levites, they would put on the shoulders and carried it around whenever they were having to use the tent and move around all the time, okay? Uh, that, that's what that was, right? There's the poles, clearly clearly there to be used, okay? Um, and then at the top, right, you get the lid or what would have been called the mercy seat, okay? And everything about the ark points to two different types of symbolism, okay? The first one we're going to talk about is how you see you get the, the cherubim there at the top, and then also uh, not, not just the ark itself, but around the ark. Uh, you saw it in the video, those lamps, Okay, uh, when the guy passed over and got the X's on his eyes and died. Okay, uh, very cartoony death, which was kind of fun. But uh, so you get the lamps like that, and you see the little things on the lamps, right? Those have been flowers. Okay, the, the whole point of the lamp, and we kind of talked about this a little bit the first time we talked about the ark, but uh, the, the whole point of the lamps and the light of the room, I think, that, that would have been from Eden, that would have been the tree of life. Okay, that's the symbolism there. Okay, then you got the cherubim, right? Two cherubim guard Eden right? So there's a lot of Eden symbolism when it comes to the ark and everything surrounding the ark, which also represents the perfect relationship between us and God. And that's what the ark also represents, okay? Um, 
Now, between the cherubim and everything, right there, okay, that's where God's uh, visual presence would have been, or the cloud, okay, that's where that would have sit. That would have been the throne, okay, that he would have sat on the mercy seat. And then, therefore, the mercy of God would have flowed from that, and that's how uh, we would have all received mercy and everything like that, okay? Now, on the mercy seat, whenever you, they would do their sacrifices, the priest would go in there and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, okay? And then that would be our atonement from the blood sacrifice, Okay, so that, that's the ark. There's the symbolism that comes with it. Okay, next we're going to talk about everything on the inside of the ark. So let's go to picture number two real quick. Ah, there we go. So these are the three things that would have been found inside the ark. Okay, so we got uh, the ten words or the ten commandments. Okay, God's word is what would have been represented there. Okay, uh, the middle one, we have a pot of manna. Okay, everyone remember the story of manna, which would have represented God's provision. Okay, and then the third is the rod, rod of Aaron. Okay, now if everyone remembers the rod of Aaron, this is the one that he was holding whenever he was ordained. Remember, everybody else was holding their own rod and God made Aaron's rod bloom, right? A dead tree to life. Okay, sound, sound familiar? All right, yep, that would represent a sign of God's ordination and life-giving power. Okay, these are the three things that would have been found inside the ark. This is the beautiful thing about Scripture. We've said this several times now, that all of Scripture is one unified story that points us to Christ. And from the very beginning, this was pointing us to Christ. Go ahead and bring up the third one. Christ is the embodiment of all of this. All of the symbolism. Everything from Eden, which would have represented our perfect relationship with God, unmarred, together. Christ did that for us. He's the embodiment of God's word, John 1. He's God's provision, Romans 3, propitiation. And he's our life-giving power. From John 10, 10, where he gives us life abundantly. These are the three things that we've been found in the ark, the things that are on top of the ark, the same thing around the ark, the holy holies. All of this is pointing us to the perf- back to a perfect relationship with God through Christ. He did all of that. The mercy seat, in order for sins to be forgiven, required a blood sacrifice. And where they just kept doing it, and kept doing it, and kept doing it. But yet... Christ's blood, when it was spilled, it gave us an eternal redemption. So now, all of the danger that we would have seen in First Chronicles, all of that, where it's just simply touching the ark would have caused us to die because we are so impure, because we are so sinful, ceremonially just, just ugly, right? We don't have to worry about that. That's not important anymore because of Christ's sacrifice giving us eternal redemption through his blood has made us eternally pure. So now our relationship that was both broken and perfect represented in all of these things are now mended through Christ, right? The curtain fell, all of those things. The temple's no longer needed. The tent's no longer needed because we are the temple now. We house God through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's within us now. 
And all of this was done by Christ, the only one worthy enough to be able to do that. The imagery that was even seen in the video was perfect. It's like where before we would have been impure by touching things. No, see now the purity of Christ comes onto us. And guess what? Here's the added level. Here's the added level. Another thing. Remember the Levites supposed to carry, right? Supposed to bring the word out to the world because of their, you know, they're ordained, right? The Levites were the ones ordained to do so. Well, guess what? That hasn't changed either. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That ordination hasn't changed. We're all a royal priesthood now. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us through Jesus Christ, the word still is being delivered by those who are ordained to do so, not by a cart. It is still our job to go out and do that. Nothing has changed. There used to be a certain procedure in place, and there still is. I'm in the middle of a home renovation, and there's many things that I'm comfortable doing. I can do woodwork, uh, make frames, replace subfloors, things like that. I can do that all day long. That doesn't bug me at all. Next step out into that would be plumbing. I can do plumbing. Might take me a couple tries, but I can get it, you know. Uh, small victory, the water's back on, and nothing's leaking. So, you know, I got that going for me. Uh, the thing I don't touch is electrical. I don't touch electrical. I'll, I'll run a wire, but then I ask people like Howard to come over and actually plug it into the box. I, I don't touch it, okay? Why? Because there's a procedure that I don't understand, <laughs> Okay? Uh, I understand circuits and, you know, this goes this way and then back around and everything. But when you start adding stuff like the ground goes back through the neutral and you have one wire that powers both a switch and a plug, which makes no sense to me. It must be a ghost living in the box. I have no idea how that stuff works. Because I don't understand it, I don't touch it. Number two, obviously, I have a healthy fear of, you know, being electrocuted and dying. Um, so because of those things, I don't touch it. This is the world that they were living in. A healthy fear is what was needed. But a procedure also needed to be followed. And we have a very similar procedure. It's just not as complicated as electrical in a house. Repent. Believe in the gospel and be baptized. So maybe you don't have the relationship this morning with Christ that you wish you did. Maybe you don't think that he has made you ceremonially pure so you can have a right relationship with God, so you can have that Holy Spirit dwelling within you, and then you can fulfill the Great Commission and go out and deliver the word because you've been ordained to do so because of his spirit within you. Maybe you don't feel like you have that this morning. The instruction is still clear. Repent, believe in the gospel, and be baptized. So as we move into a time of response, maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe you need that. Okay? I, I, I want to read this just real quick. And it's Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12. And it, it talks a little bit more about this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by man's, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his blood, thus securing an eternal redemption.
Christ is the one that does it for us. That's the gospel. Believe it. Repent. Change the way you've been thinking about the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Paul gives us a very vulgar picture of what we do. And this is, I would say, the same healthy fear of God and his holiness, but more applicable to us. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's a very vulgar picture, and it's supposed to be, because the church of Corinth needed to hear this. Even though we don't have necessarily the dangers of First Chronicles 13, we still need to have a healthy fear of the Lord in our lives, understanding that his spirit dwells within us and that we are the temple. We are members. We are extensions of Christ. That's how we get to have the term Christians, little, little Christs, right? We are extensions of him. So how do we respect that? How do we live differently? Church, that's what we need to pray through this morning. Because there's two different ways you need to think about this. Maybe you need to repent, believe in the gospel, and be baptized. Maybe that's your response this morning. Or maybe simply your response is, I need to pray through what it looks like to actually be different. Because that's what Paul was really trying to hit home with the church at Corinth. They were doing a lot of things wrong. And they needed to hear this message. That you are now members of Christ. You are a temple. Phrase or the scripture quote often for this is you are in the world, but not of the world. Right? How do we look different than others? How do we think differently than others? How do we act different than others? Because we are little Christs. We are extensions of him. How does that affect our behavior? How does that affect our relationships with our wives and our husbands? How does that affect our relationship with our kids, our grandkids? How does that affect that? We need to ask ourselves that question this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and lead us in a time of response. If you feel like you need to pray this morning, you can pray at your seat. Feel more than welcome to do that. If you need someone to pray with you, I'm up here. I'm sure we can get other people to come up and pray for you if need be. If you feel called to pray for somebody, don't, don't hold back on that. I mean, get up, walk across the room. If you feel like you need to pray for somebody, answer that call. Prayer is powerful. Consult God. Maybe you need to consult God with one another, right? Like you in, uh, uh, go up to somebody else and say, hey, I want to take, take your place in this, right? I want to pray with you and for you right now. Listen to that voice. Listen to that leading in the spirit.